Holly Joel, Jim and Chickma. As uh, David kindly introduced me, my name is Chris Hockletubby. I am a member of the Chata Nation with the also mixed ancestry with my German, Spanish, and uh, uh, Jewish heritages. I am the son of Thomas and Robin Hockletubby, and I... First off, I want to recognize the sermon title. It's an indigenous Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown. And I will tie this in. But I also want to recognize that today, friends, we worship on land that was once considered home and territory to the Bahoke, the Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, Kickapoo, Dakota, and many others who have traveled here through these parts, whether by choice or forced relocation. So I've been invited to speak to you all today about what I've been learning in my present journey of researching and writing on indigenous interpretations of the Bible, and in my capacity as the director of graduate studies for Nate's and indigenous learning community. Now, Nate's, I'm proud to say, is the first theological institution that is accredited by the Association of Theological Uh, studies that is indigenously designed, developed, delivered, and governed. Yeah. Thank you, Asworth. We are moving into our second year of this accreditation. And over this past year, I've been working with indigenous ministers, leaders, clinical psychologists, and educators to envision and build out a distinctive curriculum for our Master of Divinity program that is both trauma-informed and asset-based, that is responsible and responsive to the needs and realities of working with indigenous people who have been affected by generational trauma. This experience thus far has been life-changing, to say the least, and it's my hope to share with you all some of my insights that I've gathered and I'm still processing in my growth into my identity as a Chata follower of Jesus. So in the spirit of thanksgiving, I do want to spend some time today reflecting on a core image that comes to many of our minds of what life looks like at its best, and that is life shared around a meal with people we care about. Moreover, life is at its best when we are engaging in life-giving practices of expressing and living out appreciation for how this world cares for us. A common theme among indigenous prayers and ceremonies and rituals is the core practice of saying thank you to the world around us. So one of these stories I want to share is from the Coast Salish people in the Pacific Northwest. Now, stories abound in indigenous communities of how life goes to disarray when we forget the essential practice of saying thank you to the world around us. Sometimes things can go even really badly when we forget to say thank you. So in the beginning, in the beginning, according to the Coast Salish story, as the creator is bringing in the first humans to the party of creation, it's almost as if humanity is at the door and the creator as the good host is saying, okay, before you enter in, before you enter into this marvelous creation, There are so many people who are here excited to meet you. The salmon, the elk, the berries, and they've all agreed, they've all agreed to give themselves up for you so that you might live. But here's the deal. You have to be good guests and say thank you. 
And here are ceremonies. Here's the huckleberry ceremony. Here's the first elk ceremony. Here's the first salmon ceremony. Do these ceremonies as your way of showing your reciprocal appreciation to the creation around you. First, people are like, yes, absolutely, creator. We're on it. And so they enter the party of creation. And things go well for a little bit. Except as humans usually do, we're kind of party poopers, right? (laughs) We begin thinking, you know what? It's nice to have a lot of things. And we take and we take and we take. And we kill more animals than we need. And we take more fish than we need. And as we accumulate and we accumulate, we begin building resentments towards each other. And we get getting jealous and we begin hunting and fighting against each other over whose territory we're in. And things unwind really quickly for the first humans, such that wars are introduced, such that humans are dying. Humans are dying at such rates uh, uh, because of plague that's introduced to them, because of uh, infighting. Humans are on the verge of extinction. And seeing humans at this low point, the animals themselves are a little resentful, as you might imagine. It's been a long time since these humans have said thank you to them. And so they decide, I wonder if the order is, of the world really makes sense. I wonder maybe if we should be the ones that are eating and hunting the humans. And so the animals begin eating and hunting the humans. And the humans turn to their elders and they say, do you... Do you have any idea how we get through this? And the elders who were there at the very beginning, who were led into the party, say, you know what? We need to go back to the creator and talk to the creator. And so the creator gives these instructions and says, I look, I, I see the sorry, pathetic state that you're in. And so let's do this. Let's play a game, all right? The winner of this game gets to eat the loser. And so, I know, the stakes are high. So the animals are on one side, and they're going to play this game called the bone game. I won't get into all the details of the bone game, but it's a game that involves holding a certain kind of bone in your hand, and uh, that's the bone that gives you the point, and a bone that doesn't give you a point. You switch in your hands, and you try to get the other team to guess the wrong hand. There's also a really fun element in this, is that you're trying to psych out the other team. And the way you psych out the other team is you play these songs. And these animals, oh man, they got songs. And they are psyching the other team out. And they, I mean, it could just be like, I'm going to eat you, Tom. I'm going to eat you, Tom. And Tom's just like, I don't know which hand is it in, right? (laughs) So AD, seeing Tom about to lose his game and possibly get eaten, goes back to the creator, as an elder does, and says, can you help us out here? Like, we need songs to sing back, to outsike the animals who are going to eat us if we lose. And the creator says, okay, let me go back to the original instructions, the Old Testament, if you might say, of the indigenous people. Let me go back to the original instructions. If you go back and do these ceremonies, if you go back and say thank you, and remember the songs of thank you, I will, I will help you win. And so with these new songs that the humans get, they outsight the animals and they're able to win the bone game at the very end. And so order is restored, harmony is restored in a way such that, again, the animals say, okay, well, again, we will 
enter into this relationship with you. We will present ourselves to you when you respect our numbers and respect us, and we will give ourselves up so that you might live. And so to this day, the Coast Salish people play the bone game, and they think about what was given to them and the responsibilities for reciprocity and generosity and thankfulness that sustains their way of life and that sustains harmony in the world. So this week, we enter into a time where we too are going to gather over a meal and to say thank you. And also what's kind of a neat fact is that it is the 50th anniversary of a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And it's sweet. I will know for many of you, I'm a child of, I'm a zenial, I'm an elder millennial maybe. I was born in 1983. And so for me, one of the first introductions to my imagination of like, what was that first Thanksgiving like, really came from Charlie Brown. <laughs> I don't know how many here were introduced to Thanksgiving because of Charlie Brown, but Charlie Brown does a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to teaching. Also was the first time, right, that like Charlie Brown actually tells a little bit about the Native American story. And that was the first time I heard it as a kid. And again, when we think about Thanksgiving, we think about this image of indigenous people coming together over a great meal of celebration and of thank you. And things are wonderful, things are great, and this is going to be a wonderful time going forward. And it's not necessarily the case. Um, one of the themes I want to talk about today... Oh, well, let me first stop it here. You invite a Native American to come and talk about Thanksgiving at a Thanksgiving service, you're going to get a little Debbie Downer. <laughs> but I do want to recognize that on Thanksgiving Day represents a national day of mourning for many indigenous people in New England, right? Especially among the Wampanoag, right? For whom this story represents a lot of other things and carries a lot of other baggage. Um, and I do want to kind of walk through and unpack some of this because some of you, this story wasn't fully even known to me up until the last few weeks I started looking into this. So we have Tisquantum right, who is Patexic. And it's really interesting, in the Charlie Brown story, I remember it being a miracle that, like, the pilgrims come, it's winter, and it's a really hard winter. Like, half the pilgrims die off in that winter, which is really tragic. And the indigenous people come, and they feel a bit sorry for these people. Actually, it's also the case that the leader of the uh, Wampanoag saw the guns that the pilgrims had, and they said, well, this would probably be a really good ally to have because I have my other issues I'm trying to deal with. Let's make a covenant and a treaty here. Um, but one of the people among them is uh, Tisquantum, or Squanto, and he speaks English. He's not part of this tribe. And it's kind of amazing. It's like, wow, how does he know English? And on the one hand, you might say, well, yeah, there were a number of English traders for hundreds of years that have kind of traveled here. Some of the indigenous people had learned English. But that's not his story. Well, that's part of his story. Squanto knows English because as a kid, he was kidnapped by English merchants and brought over to Spain to be enslaved. He gets to Spain, and a number of Spanish friars see this really sorry situation. There's a number of indigenous people, and they could only buy three people. And so these friars pull together their money. They buy three indigenous people. One of them is Tisquantum. 
and knowing that even these indigenous people are not safe in Spain because they worry that the English captain, Thomas Hunt, is just going to re-steal him and then sell him again on the black market. They send him up to England where they have some contacts and effectively he lives as a butler to an English family. Um, learns English, learns English ways, finds himself on an English merchant ship and makes it back home, which is miraculous. And unfortunately, when he goes back home, he's looking for his family. He sees the land that he grew up on, but he doesn't find his family. Unfortunately, when he was in England, a plague introduced from the white merchants who had been trading and kidnapping along the coast of Massachusetts, had wiped out, uh, I forget the numbers, but a vast number of Wampanoag and other tribal people across the coast, such that his entire tribe was dead. And so that's why he joins the Wampanoag. As a Pawtuxet person, he joins the Wampanoag as the sole survivor of the great dying. And so, of course, he is one of these buffers. He's this bridge that um, is between the Wampanoag people and the English pilgrims. He helps them with uh, uh, learning how to plant crops. And it's because of his intervention along with the Wampanoag tribe that the English pilgrims are able to survive. Oops, that wasn't supposed to happen yet. And so they do have a Thanksgiving meal. It was probably three days long. It was filled with a lot of hunting and gamesmanship. It was a little bit of Olympics. They just play a lot of sport games, as guys do, and uh, ride around horses, etc. But it was lovely. It was nice. But even then, that's not the end of the story. So if that's 1621, between 1620 and 1640, we get the Great Migration. So if the leader of the Wampanoag is like, hey, this is cool, there's like 100 pilgrims. Like, there really weren't that many that survived that, after that first winter, right? We could live with this. But in the next 20 years, you get this flood, flood of thousands and thousands of settlers coming along the coast. And, you know, the indigenous people at this time, they're making different treaties with these pilgrims and these settlers that come in. And I never thought about this way. But it's interesting, one of the, the tension points is, right, as the indigenous people are making these treaties for land with these settlers, right, in their mind, the settlers are buying into the Wampanoag system. So, for example, when I buy a house in Iowa, it doesn't mean that, like, I have my sovereign fiefdom, that I could do whatever I want, that the feds and the, the Iowa police cannot come to my house and enact their laws upon me because I am a sovereign nation, right? No, I buy a house in Iowa. I participate in Iowa State Code and Law, right? This is what was in the Wampanoag's mind. But that's not the case. As the English settlers come in, they are buying land. They are setting up their own law and their own colonies, laws that are not obvious at all to the Wampanoag people. And even to make matters worse, they are capturing and trying Wampanoag people under their laws, which goes against the treaties they have. So over time, the initial leader who made the treaty with the pilgrims dies, and it's his sons who are in charge. One of these sons is named uh, Metacom, or as the English gave him the name, uh, King Philip. And so things get really bad. Relations are deteriorating, and by 1675, we have one of the most brutal wars 
amongst indigenous and settlers that occurs all across the East Coast there. And this is the King Philip's War. Now, you might see this story kind of show up in history books because this is oftentimes where they say this is when the colonists developed their own American identity because it's largely them fighting, right? And this is, the Amer- this is the American identity that began to like ferment in their imaginations that would then allow them to think of themselves as something separate from Britain. But yet, this would have devastating effects upon the Wampanoag. They would lose this battle vast majority of them would be wiped out. Those that had survived the great dying now would be completely decimated, and the few that would live would oftentimes get sent off to Deer Island to other reservations and places, right? So it has devastating consequences for these people. So the Wampanoag present day today, right, they see Thanksgiving as, okay, yeah, that's, that's one blip, but that is not the entire story. There's a lot of tragedy and mourning, both on the beginning and the back end of the Thanksgiving story that we, we need to think about. And, and true enough, right, um, and this is what led me into this sermon and thinking about this, is that oftentimes we are asked to engage in these like ceremonies of thanksgiving when we really don't feel like giving thanks, right? He, here we are going to be celebrating thanksgiving, having turkeys, when we all know and our news feeds are filling up, there is a terrible, tragic war happening in the Middle East right now. Israelis are being killed, and especially right now, Palestinians are being killed by awful, awful numbers, all right? And it's hard, it's hard to like, sit in a warm house with a turkey knowing that children are dying and starving. Right? How do we do this? How do we hold Thanksgiving and mourning together? And this is something that Jesus himself faces too. And I want to bring us to another Thanksgiving story in the Gospels. Um, and I, I don't want to take credit for this story. I got this story and this way of thinking about this text from my great friend, Alan Buck, who is a Cherokee United uh, Methodist minister in Portland. He is the minister of the Great Spirit in uh, uh, Portland, Oregon. Wonderful gentleman. And uh, he said this and it just blew my mind. Like, this is what I love about the work I'm doing is I just hear stories and the perspectives that people bring and we get to celebrate it. So I'm going to celebrate Alan Buck here today. Um, and this is the tale of two feasts in Matthew 14. So um, the chapter opens up with a birthday party. And it's a birthday party for King Herod. And one of his guests, or if you want to call it right, a guest, right, is John the Baptist sitting in his prison cell. Now, he has just arrested John the Baptist because John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, has been calling Herod out because Herod has taken his brother's wife Herodias and has married her. And he's publicly said, this is not lawful. And so Herodias says, you got to put this guy in jail. You can't have somebody undermining your power. This is empire, and the empire, the power of our state crumbles if people don't believe you're powerful. So you cannot let people backtalk you without punishment. So John is sitting in prison. And at this party, right, celebrating Herod's birth, his daughter-in-law, his niece, does an exotic dance for him or some kind of dance, who knows? It's enough for him to say, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And Herod's wife, new wife Herodias, uh, consults with her daughter, and the daughter comes and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver Thanksgiving platter. 
and Herod is mortified by this request. But his back is to the wall because he knows the game that power plays. And power sometimes eats people. And the machinations of empire, the machine of empire, roll on and grind and grind John the baptizer underneath its force. This is the cannibalistic, this is the horror of a feast of taking that empire represents in Matthew 14. But we also have another feast that follows right after this. And it begins with mourning. And so I'm going to read from the First Nations version, which is a, um, let me call it a paraphrase by my friend Terry Wildman, who is in uh, uh, New Mexico. Um, and this is, he, he wrote with a consultation of other indigenous leaders and uh, scholars, and it, it's lovely. Let me, let me start here. When creator sets free, that is Jesus, heard how gift of goodwill, John, had been put to death, he found a place to be alone for a while. But the crowds of people, when they heard it, went after creator sets free, Jesus, from their villages. And when he, he came to shore, they were waiting for him. He felt deeply for them, so he healed the ones who were sick. When evening came, his followers said to him, This is a deserted place. And the day is almost over. Let us send the people away to the villages and the countryside so they can find food to eat. Creator sets free, looked around at the great crowd of people, for there are over 5,000 gathered. There is no need to send them away, he said to his followers. You feed them. His followers could not believe their ears. With one voice they said to him, All we have is five pieces of fry bread and two fish. Bring them to me, he told them. Then he had all the people sit down on the grass. He took the five pieces of fry bread and two fish and held them to the sky. He looked up, gave thanks to the great spirit, and began to break the fry bread into small pieces, which he gave to his followers to give to the people. Everyone ate until they were full. When they were done, they gathered the leftovers, 12 basketful they had. Not counting the women and children, there were 5,000 men who had eaten. When you think about this story again, it strikes me today that Jesus is in a state of mourning over the traumatic news that he received, that his cousin, the very person that baptized him and that set him on his way, has just been brutally murdered senselessly murdered by the powers that be. And in his desperation, in his need to mourn and, and, and to process this, he jumps into a canoe, he jumps into a boat to be alone in a deserted place. Now, the word for deserted place is also wilderness. And it could be that Jesus may be going to the very place of wilderness that he originally went to for his first vision quest after he was baptized by John. Maybe he's thinking, I need to go back to the place where I had my vision for what God's kingdom is like. Because, man, if, if, there, if there's a time to question your mission is when one of your mentors and your cousin and your friend is brutally killed and you need to recenter yourself. 
And it's not clear that Jesus ever makes it to the wilderness, right? Or maybe his disciples know that, all right, this is where he goes and prays. But as soon as he's trying to get to his place, there are people there. He's trying to mourn, and people are already present in desperation with their sick. And you just wonder, what was Jesus thinking in this moment? But something clicks in him. And holding his mourning, there's still space within the heart of Jesus to feel compassion for the people, to get out of the boat, and to heal. And so this is going, he's holding a long clinic, right? There are a line of people who need healing. He's giving some teaching. And it's lunchtime, and people are hungry. And he says, what do we have, right? I'm, th- this is such an occasion. We are not going to send people away and break up this moment. And uh, they find some fry bread. They break it. They share it. And what a contrast of meals, right? Here we have a meal of Thanksgiving that helps process mourning and trauma that leads to healing. In God's kingdom, there's always enough that what is available in our wildest imaginations of heaven is already present in an overflowing abundance if we will only share with thanksgiving in our hearts. I think there's such a beautiful contrast and message to the feeding of the 5,000. And I do want to know, I love that Terry translates this as fry bread because fry bread in of itself is a powerful symbol that actually captures this story well too. So uh, fry bread gained a special prominence in uh, that wonderful movie Smoke Signals with uh, the fry bread power t-shirt there. So fry bread seems to be introduced to indigenous people around the 1860s, uh, especially with the Navajo Diné. So when the Diné are relocated and taken from the reservation territory and and forced to do a long walk of 300 miles to Bosque Redondo. It's hard to see this little picture here, but they're made to travel this way. Um, They're removed from their land. They're removed from their ability to provide for themselves. And so the government provides commodities for them to eat. Flour, sugar, fats like lards, salt. What do you do with this hodgepodge of foreign items that are not ancestral to your people? And out of nothing, and out of mourning and of sadness, you make fry bread. So fry bread is this meal that comes out of desperation and mourning. And yet it has become synonymous with indigenous joy and culture. And there's some irony around this, right? Because, you know, let's be honest, we all know that a lot of indigenous people struggle, struggle with diabetes, and this is not great for diabetes, and, and so some indigenous people have said, we can't have this as our cultural food. What the heck are we doing? We need to get back to the three sisters. We need to get back to good food, right? Um, in 2005, I think this was uh, named the official like, bread of South Dakota, right? The, this, the idea of fry bread and its connection with indigenous people has spread like wildflower fire. And um, <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, and it's joy, it's comfort, it's good food. Oh my gosh, you go to Oklahoma and there are fry bread taco sales at all the little indigenous churches to raise scholarship money for their students. Um, it is, and it's delicious. It is calories for your day, but it is delicious. 
And so that little picture up there is from an event that InterVarsity um, Native Ministries does called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? And it's a lovely, lovely event where indigenous Christians are just loved and get to hold their indigenous identity with their walk in Jesus. And so I do want to acknowledge uh, the friends that are providing today's fry bread. And I want to end with stories of thanksgiving and joy because I think the way forward, they, oh, always the question is, well, what do we do with these stories, right? And I think one of the things we do with these stories is we tell stories, it's about relationships, and it's investing in relationships and investing in communities, and, uh, and, and in those relationships are going to be the seeds of what we do next. And so I want to tell you a little bit, just really briefly, about my friends Alicia and Daniel. So Daniel owns a fry bread taco truck off of Kirkwood Ave, um, right by Big Grove Brewery. So a lot of you know where Big Grove Brewery is, I know. So there's an Indian fry bread truck, delicious. That is where our fry bread is coming today. Alicia... Um, owns an Apache jewelry store that is just thriving and has become a cultural center, a hub for indigenous ceremony healing, because where else do indigenous people in diaspora go to for ceremony or just connection and relationships? She leads a beading group full of aunties and grandmas who bead and tell stories and share life together. This is indigenous joy, this is indigenous healing, and I do want to publicly acknowledge the work of Iowa City, of our Mayor Bruce, who recently had a competition or, or, or a, uh, an invitation for different groups to apply for grants to support diverse arts and crafts. And Alicia and Daniel were awarded $100,000 from the city of Iowa Iowa City, to invest in arts and crafts. Yes, thank you. So we are right now looking for a space to build a, uh, a cultural center and a place where maybe the fry bread truck could have a more stable location and a place where uh, the jewelry store, Doklutsi, uh, I'm sorry, Alicia, I'm messing up this Apache term, but I'm working on it. Uh, Doklutsi is, uh, can have a present. It's already a wonderful store. Please go in. And what she's doing is she's doing indigenous high fashion, which is amazing. Um, so this is joy. I think there are things already in our midst to give thanks to and life to support and I, I think it's in these positive stories that there's going to be healing and there's going to be growth. So I want to end with this story because I think this is where we're going to grow. And actually, no, I'm not going to end with this story because the story is going to continue because also a way through healing and processing is through a meal together. And so we're very intentional. Today, we are going to eat some fry bread together. Amen? Amen. And we're going to have some chili together. Amen?